Good morning. Today's Bible reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 to 13. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 to 13. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since they are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to just open in a word of prayer and then we'll think about what the Lord is saying to us together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we gather like this here on a Sunday and we praise you for the opportunity to gather, when we gather like this, um, we don't come with any sort of entitlement or, or, or right uh, to know you. We know that we come by your grace to us, and only by your grace to us. And so, Father, once again, we pray that you'll make yourself known to us in your Son and through the power of your Holy Spirit as you speak to us through your word. And please, Father, help us to leave here rejoicing and full of zeal for you, full of zeal to live for you as changed people. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Brace yourselves. In the Bible, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. There it is. Wow, Pastor, thanks for the insight. That may seem trivial, but it's actually very profound. If you want to see what I mean, just ask the question, why? Why is there an Old Testament and a New Testament? What's the difference between the two? It's not such a simple question to answer. 
But it's an important question to answer because there's a lot to teach us about who God is and what he's doing. How do you solve the problem of the two testaments but the one Bible? Some people will solve it by getting rid of the one Bible. They'll say there's just two testaments, completely separate, two testaments. They've got nothing to do with each other. They, tell, they almost tell the story of two different gods. The Old Testament God is angry and vengeful and, and exacting and violent. The New Testament God is peace-loving and forgiving and just gracious and wonderful. And, of course, we prefer the latter. In fact, one of the first church heretics was a man called Marcion who wanted to scrap the Old Testament altogether. Problem is, he found a whole lot of the Old Testament in the New Testament, and so he had to scrap that as well. And by the time he'd finished doing all of his cutting, there wasn't much left. So one way to solve the problem, this problem of one Bible, two Testaments, is to get rid of the one Bible. We just have two Testaments. Another way is to get rid of the two Testaments, and we've just got one Bible. Problem with that is this question. If the New Testament makes no difference to the Old Testament, well, then why did Jesus have to come? If he brings nothing new, why did he have to come? You see, it's not so simple. But it is important because it helps us to understand who God is and what he's doing. And we get a lot of help in all of this from the writer to the Hebrews. Throughout his letter, he is showing his church just how the New Testament relates to the Old Testament. In fact, it's one of the best places to go if you want to understand the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And we see it all very clearly in today's reading. Our reading actually contains one of the longest Old, in fact, the longest Old Testament quotation in the whole of the New Testament. So it's a good place to go. It's a good place to go and get answers to the questions we've just raised. Quick recap, and we actually have it in the text, so, so open up to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Stay with me. Let's read it there. Here's our recap. Now, the point in what we are saying is this, follows the recap. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Uh, we've spent a lot of time thinking about how Jesus is a better priest. And we looked at that at length last week. So we're actually going to move on to where the argument goes next. Very briefly, Jesus is a, is a better high priest and he serves in a better tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle. That's verses 3 to 5. Then the argument pivots in verse 6 to focus on covenants. Now just remember, testament, as in Old Testament and New Testament, is just a Latinized version of the word covenant. Right? So we're talking about the same thing here. And then Hebrews 8 verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Jesus' ministry is better because it's based on a better covenant. And his covenant is better because it's founded on better promises. The New Testament is better than the Old Testament because the New Testament is founded on better promises.
So Marcion was right. And we can scrap the Old Testament. Not so fast. For one thing, the better promises are themselves found in the Old Testament. The writer takes them straight out of Jeremiah 31. So we can't just scrap the Old Testament. But the writer is going to argue that the New Testament is better. For at least these reasons. There are five of them. God's timing. God's people. God's will. God's person. And God's forgiveness. I can see one or two of you scribbling, so I'll go again. God's timing, his people, his will, his person, and his forgiveness. You got that? If you're writing it down, I hope so. Well, I'll remind you as we go. Here's God's timing. It's a simple point uh, that we saw. Actually, we saw a very similar point made last week, a simple point that we find in verse 7. Look at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So imagine Tim Cook from Apple. He comes out onto stage to introduce the iPhone Supreme. You can imagine the whole stadium, all those tech nerds just gathered together, just hundreds of thousands of them going crazy as they anticipate the big reveal. And Cook's opening line is, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the iPhone Supreme. In my hand, in the palm of my hand, I hold the future. With this device, you will be able, drum roll, to send text messages. (laughs) Reaction? Crickets. Absolute lead balloon. You can't have an iPhone 12 that isn't better than number 11. That's a simple point the writer's making. Why would God make a new covenant if the old one was enough? And as a general point, this is how God works. He shows us more and more of himself through salvation history. And the more we see, the better it is. The way God works in history means that the new covenant is better than the old. That's God's timing. Secondly, God's people. The old covenant was not perfect. In the language of Hebrews 8, it was faulty. What was the fault? Where did the fault lie? Look at verse 8. For he finds fault, this is God, God finds fault with them. God finds fault with the people. The Old Covenant, just to be clear, the Old Covenant, when we talk about the Old Covenant, we're talking about the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai through the prophet Moses. We sometimes, you'll sometimes see in the New Testament it talks about the law in this way. So the law is referring to that Sinaitic covenant, that covenant with Moses at Sinai. And in that covenant, the problem with that covenant was the people. Now that's a major problem. Because a covenant is just a contract between two parties. And at Sinai, God was one party. The people were the other party. But the problem was the people. You can see that's a major problem in a covenant with two parties. Paul will say it like this. For what the law, the old covenant, was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. The problem was not the law itself. The problem was that the law was powerless to overcome sin in us. The law was weakened by the sinful human nature. The problem was the people. And whatever the new covenant would be, it would have to deal with that problem. If it's going to be new in the true sense of the word. If it's going to bring something new, something effective, something that's actually going to change, it would have to deal with that problem. The problem of the people. Uh, We see something of this in the banking industry. We have a few bankers with us. You'll know what I'm talking about. They're constantly having to come up with new fraud protocols. Why? Well, because rules aren't enough. There isn't a set of rules, no matter how sophisticated, how elaborate, or seemingly perfect, that changes the human desire to commit fraud. No matter how good the rules, they will always have to be implemented by staff. And staff are the problem. People are the problem. The new covenant has to deal with that problem, the problem of the people. So what is this new covenant founded on better promises? And here the writer quotes Jeremiah 31. To understand what Jeremiah says, we're going to need to understand what was going on when he said it. He spoke uh, at the turn of the 6th century B.C., So Jerusalem is in ruins, the temple is in ruins, the covenant is in ruins, and the people are in exile. Two centuries before that, 8th century BC, the northern kingdom, Israel, suffered a similar fate. They were utterly destroyed by the Assyrians. Now, 6th century BC, the leadership of the southern kingdom, Judah, are living as prisoners in a foreign land. And so the question on everyone's mind would be, what now? Is this the end of the people of God? Is this what it's all come to? Is this the end of God's promises? What now? And some would certainly have been thinking it's time for reform. It's time to get back to the covenant of God. Many would have been thinking that. But Jeremiah knew better. He knew the history of Israel. He knew the countless cycles of blessing followed by hard-hearted disobedience, followed by a prophetic call to repent, followed by a hard-hearted refusal to repent, followed by judgment, and only then a brief period of repentance, obedience, and more blessing before the whole cycle began again in hard-hearted disobedience. Cycle upon cycle upon cycle of that through the history of Israel. Jeremiah knew it. He also knew all the the endless attempts at reform. In fact, his ministry was birthed into a season of reform. Uh, It began uh, in a period of national reform under King Josiah. And under King Josiah, the law was read publicly, and the people repented in sackcloth and ashes. They tore their clothes, and they wept and wailed. And just a few years later, they were back to their hard-hearted ways. Jeremiah 7, this is how God himself describes this downward spiral. Your fathers did not listen to me or pay attention to me. 
They followed the stubborn inclinations of their own wicked hearts. They acted worse and worse instead of better. From the time your ancestors departed the land of Egypt until now, I sent my servants, the prophets, to you again and again, day after day. But your ancestors didn't listen to me or pay attention to me. They became obstinate and were more wicked than even their own forefathers. This covenant was broken with no hope of repair. The people had reached their lowest point. They were utterly hopeless. They were powerless to change. Change would have to come from the other side of the covenant. If anything was going to change, it would take an act of God. Jeremiah knew it. God would have to do something entirely new. And here's the extraordinary thing. That's exactly what he promised to do. And that's what we read in Hebrews 8 verse 8, quoting from Jeremiah 31. Read with me there. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant, a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand. So just note that, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So if the problem is the people, how is this new covenant better? Thirdly, God's will. And look at verse 10 again. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. What is new about God's will in the new covenant? What is new about God's will in this new covenant? God himself has put it on the inside of his people. In the old covenant, it was written on tablets of stone. It was external. In the new covenant, God has written it on our hearts. And that happens first in the Lord Jesus himself, in his person. Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of my Father. Jesus said, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus said, Not my will, but your will be done. His will was to do the will of his Father. His Father's will was his will. It was planted into the depths of his soul. It was integrated into his being. It was on the inside. For the first time in the history of Israel, the law was on the inside. And that can be true of us. But it takes an act of God. It takes the Spirit of Christ making his home within us. 
Because the Spirit draws us into the Father-Son relationship so that we can begin to want what God wants. Think back to the banking sector. Rules and protocols are good. I mean, they communicate that fraud is bad. That's helpful insofar as it goes. But imagine, just imagine, if you could change the people so that they wouldn't want to commit fraud in the first place. So that all they ever wanted to do was manage the funds honestly and in the best interests of their clients. Imagine. You're no longer managing behavior because you, because people's hearts have changed. So you're no longer just managing the surface level, the behavior. You're no longer just treating the symptoms and waiting for them to pop up somewhere else because you can't get into the underlying disease. When you heal the disease, you also deal with the symptoms. That's the difference it makes when God's will is written on our hearts. That's the difference the new covenant makes. Let me give you another example. It's also related to money. Jacques Ellul was a French professor of history and sociology. And this is what he wrote on the topic of wealth. Now, he writes like a professor, so I'll go slowly. Just listen carefully. If we do not recognize that wealth belongs to God, outwardly moral behavior is only an expression of hypocrisy. Right? So conformity to a will that's on the outside is just an expression of hypocrisy if we do not have an internal change and realize that wealth belongs to God. He goes on, as long as a person scrupulously observes God's commands concerning wealth, without, however, going on to the heart of the problem, the law just plays the role perfectly described by Paul. It is an instrument of death, a power of sin. It spotlights our hypocrisy. And then he describes what this hypocrisy is. It's the divorce between our outer actions, law on the outside, which make us believe we are righteous, and our inner revolt, which makes us refuse God's righteousness. Do you see what he's saying? That's why the Apostle Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 13, you can give all that you have to the poor. But if you have no love, which comes by the indwelling of God's Spirit, if God's Spirit does not write His will onto your heart, you can give everything you have away to the poor. You gain nothing. That's just external conformity to the law. When the law is on the outside, you can either just reject it, or you can try and manipulate it to get the upper hand with God, and with other people. But when the law is on the inside, you actually want what God wants because you love him. That's the difference the new covenant makes. And that's the difference it makes with respect to God's will. The next difference it makes is with respect to God's person. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, 
from the least to the greatest. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the fundamental promise in the Bible. It's at the base of every single covenant. Its origins are in the Garden of Eden. It is fulfilled in the New Jerusalem. From cover to cover, this is God's declaration of love for his people. I will be their God. They will be my people. So what's new about it in the New Covenant? And here we take our cues from the rest of Hebrews. In Hebrews, what's new is the intensity of fulfillment. What's new is the intimacy of this relationship. Being God's people no longer means, as it meant in the Old Covenant, it no longer means being servants in his house or citizens in his kingdom. And either of those are honor enough, joy enough. But now, under the New Covenant, being God's people means being his sons and daughters. We are adopted into his family. By the power of his spirit, we are invited into the father-son relationship. Just let that land. We are invited into the father-son relationship, and not as guests, but as members of the family. He takes us to himself, and he gives himself to us. We are that close in the new covenant. John Donne uh, recognized that this had to be a work of God. And so he poured that idea out in his poetry. Just listen to what he writes. Batter my heart, three-person God for you. As yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend. That I may rise and stand, overthrow me. And bend your force to break, blow, burn, make me new. Yet dearly I love you and would be loved, but I'm betrothed to your enemy. Divorce me. Untie or break that knot again. Take me to you. Imprison me. For I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. The English is old, but I hope you heard in fresh language, it takes an act of God to be a child of God. And that's the new work that God does in the new covenant. What's also new is that we will all know him in this intimate way, from the least to the greatest. Because it used to be under the old covenant that the leadership of Israel mediated this relationship, this relationship between Israel and her God. That's how it was under the old covenant. Not so under the new covenant. Under the new covenant, the least in our midst is as much a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ as the greatest. Each and every part of the body has a role to play. There are no gurus in the Christian faith. We do not orbit around the holy man. We all have access to the Lord under the new covenant. We all know him intimately as an elder brother. We all know God as father and are loved by him as sons and daughters. All of us. From the least to the greatest. And that is the beautiful new covenant reality. It's one we should marvel at and desire more and more. We'll say more on that in a moment. But one last element of the new covenant. God's forgiveness. Verse 12. 
For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. God has always been merciful, long-suffering, patient, forgiving of the sins of his people. Always. That's his character. His character doesn't change. What does change is that forgiveness is now built into the new covenant. Built into the new covenant in a way that deals with our sin and secures our forgiveness fully, finally, once for all. It's worth understanding that when God remembers, he acts. That's the nature of the way the biblical word is used. When God remembers, he acts. So verse 12, I will remember their sins no more. That's more than just thinking on them. That's acting. To deal with sin, he acted. It's why the new covenant is written in the blood of Jesus Christ. Your sin, our sin, the sin of God's people across the ages is dealt with fully, finally by the blood of Christ. In the blood of Jesus, God can stay true to his character. By the blood of Jesus, he is both just Sin is punished and merciful. Sin is forgiven so that your sin will be remembered no more. And this is not a bonus feature of the new covenant. It's not an app. If sin is not dealt with, he cannot be our God and we cannot be his people. He cannot dwell in us by his spirit if sin is not dealt with. The spirit will not inhabit an unclean vessel. He is the Holy Spirit after all. If sin is not dealt with, we cannot know him. We cannot want what he wants if sin is not dealt with. Because think about this, sin is to want what we want per definition. So if sin is not dealt with, we cannot want what he wants because we're too busy wanting what we want. The foundation of the new covenant that is written in the blood of Jesus is the forgiveness of sin. It's an old truth, but it's one we need to rehearse. It's one we need to really be confronted with because across the ages in church history, and and now you see this, it's prevalent. We tempted to think the gospel is about something else at its base. All sorts of other things. But this is fundamental to the new covenant, the forgiveness of sin. The new covenant deals with the problem of the people. I hope you see that. This new covenant deals with the problem of the people. And it does that by placing God's will inside us. Bringing God's person close to us. And winning God's forgiveness for us. So let's go back to our original question. How does the Old Testament relate to the New Testament? Well, firstly, it's not as though they're two separate things, right? It's not as though Israel was one thing and the church is another thing entirely. Plan A, whoops, plan B. Every element in the New Covenant had its origins in the Old Covenant. There is one God. He has one character, one plan for his people. Marcion was a heretic. Secondly, Jesus does make a difference. He makes all the difference in the world. It's only Jesus who can solve the problem of the people by being a person. 
God as man. The Old Testament law could never do that. And the whole point of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. So they're not so now now we can state the thing clearly. The question at least. If they are not two separate things, but there is a difference, how do they relate? I think the best way to think about it is this. They relate as promise and fulfillment. Promise and fulfillment. You can't have one without the other. They make no sense apart from each other. Promise and fulfillment. They're one. They're integrated. But fulfillment is undoubtedly better than promise. Now, what does all of that mean for us, other than it's nice to know? What does it actually mean for us? So, so many things. I'd love to hear from you if, you if you're grappling with what it means for us. But let me just highlight these two in closing. The writer to the Hebrews was reminding his church of their new covenant reality so that they wouldn't be tempted to go back to the old. We know that now. The thing is that some of us face that specific temptation. We've had many people in our church over the years who have wanted us to be more old covenant in our Christianity. Now, if they mean by that, that we want to plow deeper into the old covenant so we can understand the riches that we have in Christ Jesus, I say amen and hallelujah. We want that. But if they mean by that, that we want to stand under the terms of the covenant at Sinai, we want to go back under that covenant, I say we resist that with every fiber in our being. We are not old covenant believers. Just listen to the language in our passage, and it's just our passage. Just listen to the language that our passages uses, our passage uses to describe the old covenant. The old covenant is a shadow, it's a copy, it's a mere pattern, it's faulty. And then verse 13 can't be stronger. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Why would we go back to promise when we have fulfillment? We have Jesus. He is better. And this really leads us to our second thing. Just listen again to the blessings of the new covenant. Our sins are forgiven so that we can know God as intimately as a child knows her father. And we can begin to want what he wants. We can want what he wants in ourselves. Living with him and to please him can become our deepest desire and our greatest joy. Is that true of you? Do you desire God above all else? And I'm not talking about moral conformity. I'm talking about God himself. Do you desire God above all else? Because you can have him. And you can have more and more of him for all of eternity. That's what's on offer in the new covenant. Are you taking up the offer? 
John Piper has famously said, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. And as far as I can see, on my reading of the scriptures, he is 100% right. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. He goes on to spell it out. The pursuit of joy in God is not optional. It's not an extra that a person might grow into after he comes to faith. It's not simply a way to enhance your walk with the Lord. Saving faith is the confidence that if you sell all you have and forsake all sinful pleasures, the hidden treasure of holy joy will satisfy your deepest desires. Saving faith is the heartfelt conviction not only that Christ is reliable, but also that he is desirable. It is the confidence that what he promises is more to be desired than all the world. We'll let the Apostle Paul have the final word. And as I read these words, ask yourself honestly, is this true of me? I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. My aim is to know Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the new covenant written in the blood of your Son. We freely confess that we are the problem. But you have forgiven our sins, allowed us to know you, placed your will in our hearts, all because you desire to be our God and for us to be your people. We can't even begin to understand that kind of love. But we praise you and we thank you for it, Lord. Father, please change the desires of our hearts. Help us to desire that which is worthy of all desire, total affection, deepest devotion. Put in us a passion for you and for you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.